This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. Over the last year, two years maybe or so, I have been reading more and more stories about bunkers, not the golf kind, the kind that people are building in preparation for whatever. And it was about a year ago that I was reading one that about a, a reading a story about a bunker that was built as part of a, it was a nuclear, it was out in the country somewhere, one of the old Cold War missile silos where they would have had a nuclear warhead stored on a missile. The missile, of course, is gone. The warhead is gone, but the hole in the ground existed still. And someone was building this huge underground community. In the event of disaster, everybody ru- buy a place and then everyone rush to your underground bunker and stay safe. And it was, I got to tell you, the design was cool. It all looked really neat. But it got me wondering, what is going on that we are now at a place? Because the Cold War was the Cold War. We understand that. But we're not, we're not in a Cold War per se right now. Well, Mike Peters is the owner of a company called Ultimate Bunker that is based out of Utah. But he builds bunkers all over the United States. And he was quoted today in a piece uh, that I was reading, and I thought I'm going to get him on here because, boy, this is a, this is such an interesting topic to me, Mike. Thanks for doing this. Appreciate you joining me this evening. Hey, no problem. Um, we often hear, like, we often use the line jokingly that you know something is the sign of the apocalypse being upon us. Th- this almost seems like this is a sign of that that people have decided they need to now have underground fortresses or underground places where they can hide out in case something bad happens. That's definitely true. You know, the last couple of years have really changed the way that people are thinking and the reasoning behind it. And what is that? When you talk to people, because I know that you must get not just buyers, but you must get people who are curious or just trying to check it out. What do they say? Why are they calling you when they call you to inquire about this? They want protection and they want it, they want it comfortable and they want it big enough to take care of everything. And protection from what, though? What is the thing that they are most worried about right now? You know, it used to be the apocalypse, but now it seems to be more uh, government and uh, civil unrest. And so are the places where you're getting the calls and where you're building these, are these in places where most people would say, well, yeah, I I can see that you would have a lot of militias or things like that where you hear a lot, or is it all over the place? Is it even people in places that we would never anticipate there would be these kind of comments? It's everywhere. Really? We're doing them so far out in the middle of nowhere. I mean, they're so far out, remote, and then we're doing it right in the city. These things can get built in the city? We do. Wow. Okay. Now, now, who is doing this? Who is calling you? I mean, is it only the super rich who are saying, I got to be protected, or is it everyone across the board? I wouldn't call it the super rich, no. It's just people that have a little extra money, and they have that fear in them that, that something could happen. And so we provide them with whatever type of bunker they want. I can make them as extreme as they want to go to fit their, their fear level. And some people have a lot more fear than others. Okay, so explain this concept to me. I call you up, and, and again, your, your company is called Ultimate Bunker. I say, okay, Mike, you know what? Um, I got some f- I, I'm worried about where the country is going. I'm worried about what's going to happen. I want to be safe. And you then sit down with them. What, is, what can you do? What's the concept behind what you're building? Uh, luxury and comfort with the high security. So I can give you maximum security and protection from almost anything. 
but in a luxury atmosphere. You know, the bunkers back in the days used to be around pipe in the ground. Exactly, like the yeah. Submarine. We all know those ones, or the, or the tornado shelter or something like that. We all have seen those before. Right. They've advanced so much in technology and all the research and engineering that, that we've put into it and everything. They're so off-grid now. You can go put them anywhere and be self-sufficient and live in luxury off-grid. So let, let's break this down a little bit. What Are they in a metal or steel or something shell? I mean, is the casing protected from, I don't know, whatever it might be protected from? Is there is there a hard shell around whatever it is you're building? Yeah, we, we build a great big steel box that has six-inch thick uh, beams inside of it and whatnot. And then we bury it 10 feet of dirt on top, and that way you have the radiation protection. Your climate control is much better. You're a comfortable temperature down below. And so you're protected a lot of ways right there. And then there's several other things we can do to add more protection. And But you say that unlike the old ones, unlike the old school ones, there is luxury here. And I, I went on your website and I would encourage, I'll, I'll put a link to it on my website, on my Facebook page, so people, during the commercial, so people can see it. But um, when you talk about luxury, I mean, it, when I saw the video that you had posted of at least one of these places, it looks like a, when you walk in it, when you get past the fact that you've gone down underground, it looks like a home. Yeah. You couldn't tell. I mean, unless, except for the fact that there's no windows, it looks like a home. That's been our focus when we first started this company was to make something comfortable that you can live in that ain't going to kill you mentally. Mm. If you go in one of these old round pipes or whatever and you try and live in there, you're going to kill your spouse, your friend, or whatever because <laughs> yeah. of the madness. Go down there for so safety made, and end up killing each other. Right, especially after a month or two. And so we made it so that you got flushing toilets, you got showers, you got custom cabinets, you got high-definition TV. You've got state-of-the-art amenities inside underground. We can put in phony windows that that basically is a TV that you can set to whatever atmosphere you want it to be outside, and now you have windows. But how does this... Two stories down. Mike, how does this work, though? Because the, the one of the things that I immediately thought is, all right, if, again, if it's a storm cellar, if I'm going down there because there's a tornado coming or something, I know I'm going to be down there for a few hours, maybe 24 hours, and then I'm going to come out, and so I could have enough water in a tank. I could have a septic system that I could go to the washroom in. I could maybe have enough water for a shower. But if I'm going to be underground for any length of time, where do I get my fresh air? Where do I get my, my clean water? Where does the waste go? How do you do all that stuff? Well, we have that all under control. Uh, we usually recommend getting your water from a well. That way the water stays underground the whole time and it doesn't come to the surface to get contaminated. So even in a nuclear event or whatever, your water should stay safe because it's underground. Uh, the electricity, we use a lot of 12 volt, and so everything inside is very, very efficient. And we have battery backups, and we can put solar panels, generators, windmills to get your power supply. As far as your toilets, we have a septic system that is down inside the bunker that pumps everything up to the surface where there is another septic system, and that disposes of all of your waste. Your fresh air comes through a NBC, which is a nuclear biological chemical filtration system. 
So we have all the bases covered. You can go down there and you can stay down there and everything is going to be taken care of. I would assume that part of that many people, when they go down there, part of this is when you said at the top, um, potential unrest that you want to be hidden. You don't necessarily want someone knowing you're down there. So can all those systems be hidden so that no one would ever know if I build one in my backyard, let's say, could it be done? So all the stuff could be hidden that no one would know that I'm actually underground. Yeah. We do that all the time. The only thing that's really hard to hide is solar. Right. You obviously need it to be out where the sun will shine. So what is something like this? I mean, a rough estimate, because I know you can probably go from, you can probably go up to whatever amount you want. But what does one of these things start at? If I want to build a, a basic place for a couple of us to go and stay in for a period of time, what, what's, where am I going to be starting as far as a budget? By the time you're installed and in the ground and hooked up, you're probably close to hundred grand. All right. And that's that's fully ready to go. Done. Turnkey. And you order it, give me a deposit, I'll be there in about thirty days or so, forty five okay. days. And have it put in the ground. And what about what's the of what you've done so far, the ones that you've already built, what would be the upper end? How much would somebody have paid for the biggest, most lavish one that exists so far from you guys? Um, I'm working on a project right now that uh I'm on year three of it and uh that's that's into the millions i'm not sure where it's going to end yet because it's kind of an open project that just keeps going and going and they keep adding on and they're you know getting more money together and just continuing the project so there's really no finish line on this but we're already into the millions you know as i'm reading about some of this stuff there's one other thing because the bunkers are clearly the um the thing that's new or the, that's newest that, that people are doing. And again, I talked off the top about using a nuclear silo or something, but the other thing that I've been reading about are safe rooms. Now people have had safe rooms for any length of time of some kind or other, but is this something, cause it seems like that would be an awful lot less expensive and it would be something that maybe you would be asked to do for someone that's not going to cost them a fortune that can be built right into their house. Are you seeing those being requested? You know, I'm doing a lot of work down in California right now, which is safe rooms down there because they can't really dig there in the city. So when you're in the city and you can't dig underground, we'll come in and put a safe room inside your house, which will give you a lot of protection from civil unrest and all that kind of stuff. Not nuclear, though. Let me so go we back. Can build safe rooms. Let me go back, though, right to the beginning because, again, I'm trying to get my head around who is doing this. And I know you say everybody, but it just it seems to me that it's. Am I wrong that this is something that has seems like anyway it's really taken off in the last couple of years, or has this always been around? No, it's definitely taken off. When I first started five years ago, I struggled. I was doing tornado shelters in these little projects, and, you know, it was a completely different client. And it just, you know, I, I started advertising high-end bunkers, and all of a sudden it took off. At the same time, the the whole way people are thinking has all just taken off the last couple of years. And what is that? Is there something that you can see in the, in the world, in the news, in the politics, whatever else? Is there something that you can mark as a point that really started getting people thinking about this? Was there something that happened that made people really start to think about this? Yeah, terror attacks. You okay, know, that, that makes sense. happened in France, that really, my website almost tripled just instantly when that terror attack happened and it became live public news it just took off and every time some little event a shooting or anything my website just 
it has a big increase and my phone rings and I get lots more emails. So the people are, they're there on the edge of teetering of what to do. There's so many people there and it's just the little triggers like that that say, okay, I have to do this. And the thing that amazes me, and I know you know you're not wanting to necessarily uh, be pitching for other people doing the same thing. I know you're in competition, but you're not alone in this. There's a lot of people who are in this business as well. Correct. So, so the fact is, when you say your business has taken off, I'm assuming that if other people also are still in business, they must also be making some money. So, there's an awful lot of people in this who are finding enough clientele who are worried enough about their situation to build an awful lot of bunkers around North America. Correct. That is, that's, um, does that surprise you? You know what? Five years ago when I started this company, I had no idea this was going to be like this. I thought I'd just sit here and do little tornado shelters and, you know, just little projects. Fifty thousand dollar projects, but now I—it's not even what I imagined. It's—it uh, it is pretty remarkable. I mean, again, I—you know—we think of these things. I—I I do anyway as storm shelters more than anything. But it sounds like that's almost completely now not what these are for. These are all for non acts of God. These are human events that people are preparing themselves for. Human, for sure, human events. Every one of my clients, pretty much, is human events. Wow. Well, listen, it is uh, Mike Peters. His uh, company is Ultimate Bunker. You can go on. It's actually, it's ultimatebunker.com, right, is the name of the website? Yes, correct. Ultimatebunker.com. You can go and look. He has a video on there. He has a bunch of floor plans and everything else. But there's a video of one of these. Now, and, and this bunker in the video, it would be considered one of the higher end ones, correct? Um, not really. Middle of the road? That that's that's probably my basic one right there. Okay. All right. So there's a there's a video of a basic bunker. What we're talking about again. This is no longer the kind of bunker you saw in the movies where someone went into it and they had a shelf of creamed corn and canned beans and a few bottles of water. This is um, this is the new reality. Mike Peters, really appreciate the time tonight. Thanks for doing this. Thank you. Uh, go and look. I'm gonna, as I say in the commercial, I'm gonna try and post. The, his webs a link to his website on my Facebook page, Scott Radley Show Facebook page. You can um, you can go and look that up. But boy, oh boy, the fact that and go on the web because just poke around, you will see how many companies now are building bunkers, shelters, bomb shelters, these kind of things, places to hide from civil unrest, from whatever else. And some of these, when you look around because I spent a little bit of time today checking out some of these others. We're talking, he said, in the millions, but even for not one that is at that level, in the hundreds of thousands of dollars for something that is essentially an insurance policy, but it people must feel scared enough that they will put this kind of money into this kind of thing. It is, it is, it's distressing in a sense. It's depressing in a sense. How fearful do you have to be that you would build one of these? But they are. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. We have been waiting since the weekend to see if anything was going to come of Kent Austin responding to admittedly a terrible call by an official. But we've been waiting for a number of days now to see if slapping that official's hand, whether intentional or accidental, he says accidental, we'll give him the benefit of the doubt, but waiting to see if anything was going to happen because leagues 
frown heavily upon abuse of officials, as they should. So accidental, intentional, you make contact in a, an aggressive manner with an official and usually something happens. Well, for day after day after day, nothing happened. The CFL was exploring, investigating, doing what they were doing. Today, they finally came down with their verdict and the verdict is puzzling, puzzling. Kent Austin is going to be penalized. He is fined $10,000. And while he's not suspended per se, as many people thought he should be, he has been, for this next game against Calgary, he has been banished to the press box. Now, my colleague Drew Edwards wants to make sure, I, I heard, that no one actually thinks he's in the press box with the press. He'll be in the spotter's booth. But he's upstairs. He's away from the sideline. He can't be as intimately involved in the goings-on with the players and with the officials as he normally would. So what do we make of this? Is this, did the CFL get it right? Did the CFL whiff on it? What did the CFL do? Well, i tell you who we're going to find out from. Our old buddy, Bubba O'Neill from CHCH, who joins us now. Bubba, thanks for coming in tonight, or at least coming on tonight. My pleasure, Scott. Interesting topic tonight. Listen, um, I don't have any doubt in my mind, accidental, intentional, doesn't matter. Kent Austin was 100% in the wrong. If you make contact with an official, you are in the wrong. I don't care what happens. And, I mean, unless, of course, you fall over or something and it's completely out of your control. That's not the case here. So, I, in my mind, Kent Austin is 100% wrong. Let's start there. Agree or disagree? I agree with you, Scott, into some respect to the fact that when he approached the um, the official, he was in a rage, uh, very upset over a call that is, I mean, I mean, you can call it good or bad, but it's a, I, I'm going to define it as a rare call that we see in the Canadian football. It was a bad or, call. Come on, I mean, we can admit I, it was I a bad I call. I can't say that because it's written in the rule book that, the, that, that you can't do that. So it's a rare call. All right. And generally the centers get the benefit of the doubt, and that's not a call that we would generally see, especially in a, in a crucial situation when it's third in inches. So that call to me, we could argue about it in another show, but they, so it was an unusual rare call. Uh, but like what I can say is that Austin was not a happy camper, and rightfully so, I think some Ty Cat fans would generally say. But his behavior in that moment was not conducive to what we appreciate in sports. Officials need to be protected. Uh, they're neutral, you know, people in in the game, and officiating is very very tough. They make good calls. They make bad calls. But what he did was wrong. My problem is. What took the league so long? Well, okay, I want, I want to get to that. I want to get to that. Hold that thought for just a second, because okay. I want to work through this, because I, I, I want to get to the league for sure. But, but still with Ken Austin for one second. Mm-hmm. He goes over to close enough to the official that when he reacts physically, whether intentional or not, and I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt, I, I will give him the benefit that he did not intend to slap the official's hand. No. Fine. I agree. This is a man, though, this is a coach who has more than once, well more than once, had temper tantrums on the sideline. Last year was fined for basically dropping a shoulder and body checking an opponent, Dave Stalla. This is a guy, this is not a first offense. It's a first offense like this, but we've seen this act in some ways many, many times before. But does that really matter in the broad scheme of things here, and this is where I, I keep going back to the league, because 
as far as I know, and I could be, and, I, and I'm hoping to be corrected if so, but I've done enough fact checking here. The league had no precedence here. There's no official sort of ruling to punishment on on what would happen in this situation. So the league, obviously, if, at least from the way I read it, and Commissioner Jeffrey Orridge, they're going to be looking into setting a mandate and a proper punishment for situations like this. So in many ways here. Ken Austin ends up kind of being made example of. He turns into the Martha Stewart <laughs> of the that's, situation. That's here. the first time he's ever been compared to Martha Stewart. I assure you. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like when Martha Stewart went to jail for what she what she what, what she did, there had been no precedent for it. So the judge just made a ruling, and she went to jail for 30 days. Okay, so this now gets us to the league. So I mean, whether Ken Austin again? I mean, I, I think we've seen this act. I, I would argue that if you're a coach, that you are and you're preaching discipline on a team that over the years under you has had penalty problems, you need to show a level of discipline that just we don't see from Kent Austin very often. However, we get to the league. If you're the league and you're looking at this, I understand that there may be some gray area, but ultimately you have to decide, did he do something wrong or didn't he do something wrong? And so whatever problem I may have with the way Kent Austin behaves sometimes, I look at the league now and I think, wait a second, ultimately you have to decide, is what he did wrong and a violation of the kind of rules that you hold dear because they are protecting your officials, or is this not wrong because it was purely accidental? What the CFL did today was they decided, pardon the expression, which doesn't really fit, they decided that Kent Austin was half pregnant. They've basically said, well, he kind of, sort of, maybe, what does that mean, Bubba? What, what's the precedent now that they've put in? If I accidentally run over an official, if I accidentally hit an official, if I would accidentally spit on an official, I'm okay? Like, what does it mean? But this is where I'm confused, and, and, and this is why I keep going back to the league on this, Scott, because, again... You want to get the call right. We've always said that about officials. And I'm sure the commissioner and whatever discipline he wants to issue for any punishment, you want to get it right. But first of all, if they're so protective of the officials... Which they should it, be. Why did, which they should be. Why did it take four days to levy a punishment? We're in a situation here where the Canadian Football League have been criticized by some of the top um, analysts, insiders, broadcasters of the league for not making any action. And to me, this happened on Saturday night. This is a, If we're saying this is the way the statement came from the CFL today, the way I read it, this is a serious offense. So it, it definitely deserves uh, investigation, uh, comments from the officials, comments from maybe both coaches, whatever the situation, a full investigation. But to me, for something this serious, why did it take this long? And it, the, as I said, the CFL has been criticized heavily for not taking action. And like you said, they kind of kissed their sister in this situation by telling the coach, you can't coach from the sideline, but you can still be there. And It, it looks to me, to me, in a lot of what you're saying, it looks to me like when you, come, when you say about all the analysts and you're talking about people who are respected voices around the league, as the choir began to build to a crescendo, that it looked like they decided they better do something. Absolutely. 
actually, Scott, Scott, I stood right in front of the man at, at Ken Austin in an interview with him on Tuesday, which was just yesterday. And there, were, and Drew Edwards was there, and, and he, I thought he did a, a, a spectacular job of. I'm not going to say go after Kent, but he 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 was looking for answers and wanted information. And Kent was more than willing to give us the information. He talked to the league. He apologized to the official. Uh, he completed the total protocol, I guess, before the game, after the game, talked to Glenn Johnson, who was the, the, the official. Everything was done, and he left us with the impression, or left me at least with the impression, that he thought the situation was, the, the, the book had been closed. So to me, when this broke, this story broke, and this news broke about a punishment, I have to admit I was very, very surprised. Here's and I know there's many many sides to every story, but again, from the from the way Kent left it in his press conference on Tuesday, I truly believe he thought that he that everything had been taken care of, and the fact that he had confirmed to all of us that none of this was uh, done on purpose, that it was purely purely accidental. In in, and he admitted to being very very angry about a call. But let's let's use some other examples from other sports because I know they say in the CFL this is a situation without precedent. But this is why I think the CFL completely has now botched this thing. Go back about four or five years. I can't remember exactly. It might have been 2012, 2011. And you may remember this. I'm sure a lot of people who are sports fans will remember this. Brett Laurie was at bat for the Blue Jays and got called on two brutally bad strike calls, including a strike three. And on the second brutally bad one that struck him out. Yep. He lost his marbles, took off his hell his batting helmet and spiked it into the ground. Now when he spiked it into the ground, yep. it took a funny hop and hit the umpire. He didn't aim to bounce his helmet off the umpire, but it took a bounce and hit the umpire. Brett that was accidental. Brett Laurie immediately within a day or two got a four game suspension. Mm-hmm. Last year, a couple of years ago, Maybe a couple years ago, Daniel Carcillo, when he was with the New York Rangers in hockey, gets separated out of a skirmish by the official and tries to jerk himself free. And as he does that, his hand punches the official in the L in the arm. Didn't it wasn't a punch, but he made contact with the guy. He got a ten-game suspension. So in most leagues, it doesn't matter if your intent, if you intended to hit the official or not, if you took an action that you should have known, it's like manslaughter without the death. If you took an action that you should have known could have led to abuse of an official, other leagues very quickly, very definitively, very clearly say, not not good enough. That is not acceptable in our league. You are suspended. And what they've done here is created, I think, a whole lot more confusion and created pablum. They've now Now, every time... Some official is, something happens with an official, they're all going to point to the Kent Austin situation and say, well, there, what, what did that mean? And we don't know what it means. I just think Jeffrey Orridge has made a hash of this thing. Well, I, and, I, and I mean, and I know you listed off some spectacular examples there that I think most of us remember. As you said, if you're in the sports world, all of those are examples I totally remember. But Scott, I don't even think you need to go that far back. Just two or three months ago, we had an incident with Montreal Alouettes receiver Deron Carter. Yep. Purposely, it would appear to me, and I thought Rick Campbell, the Ottawa Red Blacks coach, played it up real well, bumped into him, and was suspended for one game without pay. And if you get a suspension okay. for you, hitting that's a, a that's, coach... That's, that's, that's a, a, one, a full one-game suspension. Cannot participate, cannot play. Which, to me, is a much more severe penalty than what Ken Austin is getting. So I, I don't see the equal there. 
And that was not to an official. Because, again, I keep coming back to this. In every single sport, officials are untouchable. You, yep. you just cannot allow them to be abused, intentionally nope. or accidentally. You just nope. cannot allow it to happen. And so in this case, you've got Duran Carter who bumps a coach. Now, I'm not, I'm not justifying that. I think the suspension that he got was fully justified for that. But that was a coach. That is not one of the members of the game that is untouchable. And again, even giving Kent Austin every benefit of the doubt that it was an accidental thing, he swung his arm. He didn't trip and fall and land on the official. He made an aggressive motion yep. that he had to have known could have could have made contact with the official. Now, I know he's not thinking this through at that exact moment of, oh, if I swing my arm, I could make contact. It just... Bubba doesn't make any sense to me what has come out of this. The CFL needed to decide it's either a penalty or it's not a penalty. They've got this half a penalty thing, and we I don't know what this means now, and I don't think anyone else does either. What happens next time? Well, I, I don't know, and I think that's why you have a guy like, you know, Ticat's CEO, Scott Mitchell, who who straight up said, you know, I mean, hey, and I, as Kent did as well too, hey, I respect the decision of the league and what Jeffrey Orridge is trying to do and all of them. But between the, co- between the coach, and I thought even more definely said by, by Scott Mitchell, that they're not happy about this. They, I mean, that the, the, that the, the penalty is, you know... He called it punitive. Much. He called it punitive. Punitive. That's exactly the word he used, which to me is, you know, it, it, it is a clear... Um, uh, indication to all of us that he thinks the that the, the decision is crap. <laughs> but okay, but again, once again, we're talking about the CFL. If they decided that Kent Austin needed to be punished, what I don't understand, and this is what I keep coming back to, what I don't understand is why then do you take a half measure, right? If it's wrong enough that you need to be punished, you punish. And I don't see any punishment, really. I mean, off the sidelines, but still able to participate with the headset on and calling the plays and doing all the stuff you do. I understand that that may have some impact on the game, but it's not like not being involved in the game in any. It's not like a baseball man. Remember when John Gibbons was suspended this year and he had to sit up in the owner's box and have yeah. no contact with the team? Now, if, if they had done that, that's a punishment. If they had said, Ken Austin can't be around the team for the whole week of practice, that's punishment. Yep. What is this? This is this is the CFL getting mealy mouth and mushy and not wanting to take a stand because they don't want to upset the officials, but they don't want to upset their fans. They don't want to upset anyone. They, it's Jeffrey Orridge trying to appease everyone, and as a result, appeasing no one. Well, and and I mean, and I'm not quite sure of the definition. I mean, in the in the uh, statement released by Jeffrey Orridge, it was you know the head coach Ken Austin will not have the privilege of being on the sidelines and interacting. Blah with blah the team. blah. Okay, now the privilege. Now, does the privilege also mean that when he's up in the spotter's box that he can put a headset on? Of course. I mean, like, is that do we know that for sure? And and if so, then that's even that's even crazier. Well, you know, you know, the funny part about this is that. If he's got the headset on and, and he will still be acting as the head coach in a different geographical place, he will presumably actually have better views for things like replays with TV nearby than he would have if he was on the sideline. 
Exactly. He can have any interaction. I mean, that means he'd be able to discuss things with the offensive coordinator, Steph Patasic, or I mean, uh, Orlando Steinauer, the assistant coach, is acting as the coach here, who's also the defensive coordinator. And as you said, that would be a helping hand to him as well, too, to have Kent uh, above. Now, I, again, I'm not quite sure exactly if he will be allowed to wear a headset. And, and be as far as I know, it was yes. He can do everything else except be on the sidelines. Well, then th- th- this makes it even worse. Like this, just, this is becomes more of a joke. Then, and, and like again, you, to me, like I said, I called it a sister kisser before, and and like, I just don't understand it. Here is if from you're gonna pun- if you're going to punish the man, punish the man. Here is from Drew Edwards' story that's on the spec dot com right now. Under the ruling. Austin will be able to watch the game from a coach's box above the field and communicate with quarterback Zach Caleros and assistant coaches via headset. Austin is also the team's offensive coordinator and will continue to call the plays. You know what could be really interesting out of this whole thing, Bubba? And I don't expect this. I think there is a very small chance of this. But as I introduce this, and we just got a minute left, remember how the first time, the story I heard anyway, the first time we had the hockey analyst down between the glass, you know when they first did that? It was because there wasn't room in the broadcast booth in one of these places. So they stuck the guy down between the glass and said, hey, try it from down there. Yep. Kent Austin, what could be very interesting is if a head coach went upstairs. This happens in U.S. college football. There are coaches that coach from up there. And you suddenly find that I actually can do some things up here that I can't do on the field. I don't expect this. I think the chances of that happening are very, very, very small. But this potentially could lead to someone else actually trying this. So in an attempt to penalize someone, the CFL could actually be direct creating a new thing which i mean again i i I don't expect that's going to happen but ken austin could have some advantages from being up in the booth so again ken's too of a too much of a i understand kind of guy that that won't happen but like i said in u.s college there are schools that have the head coach up top um this this would be this has been done already um but again i i think coaches just as the sort of alpha dogs that they are they need to be right there and uh, so I don't see this being, a, you know, a new a new habit or a new way of coaching or whatever, unless they were injured or something like that. We got to we got to go, Bob. But here's the thing. I mean, listen, Ken Austin, he may or may not have done something, but the CFL just completely made a hash of this thing. I'm sorry, they had to make a decision, and what they did was chose applesauce instead of something stronger than that, and. You know, bad on them, but we'll see how it goes. The Ticats, you know, they're in tough anyway this week. Listen, Bob, i got to let you run because we are way over time, but thanks for doing this as always, man. Yeah, great conversation, Scott, uh, and to look forward to the next time. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Sunday night, Vin Scully will call his last baseball game. Now, for some of you, you don't care. That's fine. That's fine. But this is interesting, and this is important, and this is newsworthy. For a couple reasons. One of them is because many people say he is the best baseball broadcaster of all time. That's debatable. That's a matter of personal opinion. But he has been doing this nonstop, consistently, for 67 years. He has done this for longer than the lifetime of someone who generally retires. When you think about that, it's it's stunning. And at one point earlier this year, when they were talking about Vin Scully in his last year, they were pointing out that I can't remember who it was now, but the first manager of the Brooklyn Dodgers that he covered when he first took over this team, first took over broadcasting it, the manager, his playing career went back to the 1800s. So Vin Scully was the connecting piece between the 1800s and today in baseball. 
That's remarkable. Chris Zelkovich, Yahoo Sports Media, Sports TV writer, joins us now. Always love having Chris along. Chris, thanks for doing this tonight. Hey, anytime, Scott. What, what is it that has made Vince Scully not just last this long? Lots of people, I suppose, could last this long if they really wanted to, um, maybe. But what's made him good enough to stick around this long and still be listenable? Well, I think he... he, he you know whether it's a gift or it's just a, you know the product of a phenomenal amount of work, but uh, probably a bit of both. He just, you know, he he calls a baseball game the way a baseball game should be called. I mean, he's a, you know, if you were going to create a, a perfect baseball announcer, you'd pretty much start with Vin Scully and and stop there because he, you know, he he, he probably wouldn't be a great announcer for basketball or or football or hockey. If he ever chose to do those, but but he 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 just suits the pace of baseball better than than anybody else. I you know certainly that I've heard, uh, and and I mean, you know anybody who can do do something for uh, you know seven decades uh, and still be employable. Uh, and in fact, I think if he decided to to come back next year, they they would have jumped at oh yeah signing him in a heartbeat. It really is, you know, just a remarkable uh, accomplishment. Now that said, Chris, uh, very honestly, is is he still at the top of his game, or is he there because at some point you just say, "Listen, he's been there so long." And the reason I ask is not I'm not saying he's forgetting stuff or whatever. I'm just thinking his call when he was at his best, when he was at his peak. It was in a time when maybe we didn't have as much television. People would sit around their radios on the front porch. I mean, oh, I'm painting a John Grisham-like picture of middle America. But but they would listen to the games on the radio, and there was a pace, and there was a relaxed way that people would listen to it. Is that still, does that still work? I mean, I think, it, again, for baseball, I believe it does. I mean, you know, the beauty of, of Vin Scully is that he's still one of the very few who does it by himself, which in my opinion, is the way baseball should be done, assuming that you have a guy who, who can handle that. You know, like Vin speaks to the listener. You feel like he's having a conversation with the guy listening on the radio or watching on TV, which is the way the game started out to be, and it's kind of morphed over the, over the decades to become what it is today, which is two guys talking to each other, and sometimes three guys talking to each other. Uh, and, uh, you know some cases it works but in most cases it really is uh you know more annoying than anything else um i i kind of liken vin to a bob cole who's another guy who grew up in radio and a lot like uh, foster hewitt did he doesn't really call exactly what's happening (laughs) you know tv kind of exposes uh bob cole these days or as actually how he has for 15 years that the man you know, doesn't exactly see things the way they happen. But you know what? It doesn't matter. I mean, the the rhythm of his voice and the sound, it, to me, just, uh, you know, makes up for the occasional, you know, mental blip or, you know, identifying some guy on the ice who, uh, you know, who retired five years ago. Well, no, <laughs> and that's... Whatever. And, you know, and I think I, I haven't heard much of Vin because we don't see him much here, but when I do hear him, to me, he just... He sounds like baseball the same way Bob Cole sounds like hockey. You're exactly right, because when Bob Cole eventually hangs it up, or when Vince Scully hangs it up, I think for a lot of people, for more than a generation of people, for me, you know who it is? It is whenever I hear Dick Irvin talk, I immediately think of my childhood with games coming from the Montreal Forum. 
for whatever reason, I, as soon as I hear that voice, I am immediately transported to that place. And I think with Vin Scully, for a lot of people, they smell something, they see something, they feel something when they hear his voice because it takes you somewhere. Yeah, and I think you know one of the disadvantages to being around so long, and of course being based in Los Angeles, is that you know he he's got to the point where he's he's almost a, a parody of himself mm. because you know shows like The Simpsons, for example, have have used the Vin <laughs> Scully impersonation as sort of the standard for the hokey baseball announcer. But but the truth is, you know, <laughs> that that he's still does the job better than than uh, than 99% of the guys out there. Uh, in fact, I, you know, the guys I've heard doing the games, only one comes to mind who might be able to do a game by himself, and that's the, that's our own Dan Schulman. Mm. Yeah, I think uh, Dan had the potential and the intelligence and the the knowledge and the work ethic to to actually just call a game by himself and and do it quite well. The only difference between he and Vin Scully is about. 70 years and a lot of hair. Um, but but is this, why then, if he does such a great job, if Vin Scully is the top of the game, and, and I, almost everybody will say that he is. There's a few people, of course, who will take issue with that, but most people will say even if he's not the best guy, he certainly was in the top two or three of all time. Yeah. Why do we not have a lot more baseball play-by-play guys, or frankly, any play-by-play guys, who st- why do we not hear more guys doing what he did, studying what he did, Im- imitating, almost stealing some of it? If it's that good, pick up some of those habits, pick up some of those things and do it yourself. Why do we not see that? Well, I think, I think the, the, the times have changed, and, and what the, uh, the television or radio demand is, is the conversation between a, an announcer and an ex-player. And that has become, I mean, that, that, that didn't arrive until I think it was somewhere in like the earlier mid-60s. You know, well, I guess it was a little earlier than that with Pee Wee Reese and Dizzy Dean. But, you know, it was a fairly recent uh, innovation in the sport. But it has now become, it, it has become what everybody wants. And I, I think, you know, if you were to, to, to uh, well, Dan Schulman were to go, to go into uh, ESPN and say, uh, you know, I don't want to work with any more uh, Ball players, I think I'm the guy who can do it by myself. They, you know, they'd say, "Yeah, okay, head back to Canada, kid. We, uh, you know, we, we 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 don't want you anymore." It's just it's just styles have changed, and I don't think I don't think you'd find a broadcaster who would be willing to go for that. When Vin Scully walks off into the uh, into the sunset, he's not doing their playoffs, which I find a little bit unusual. Yeah. Uh, the only reason I can think that he might do this, honestly, is you never know when the last playoff game is going to be, whereas you can clearly delineate, this is my last game, if that's what he really wants, to make sure that it's, it's clear that when it's going to happen. But if you are someone, if Chris Zelkovich was a play-by-play guy, if you were looking to get a job, would next year, would the Dodgers play-by-play radio job be the best job on the market, or would it be the absolute living hell for anybody because you will forever be the guy who came after Vin Scully? Well, it'd be like the guy who replaced Wayne Gretzky or Jean Beliveau or Mickey Mantle. I mean, yeah, that I, that would uh, that would take uh, somebody with a lot of uh, a lot of guts to uh, step into <laughs> a job like that because. It, you know, there's no question you you would be you would be compared to Vin at at every turn, and of course, eighty percent of the audience would 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 hate you just because you're there because you're not Vin. So yeah, I wouldn't 
<laughs> I think it would take somebody with a lot of courage and a lot of confidence to. Or, uh, take or a guy who doesn't really envision himself having a long career. Put me in there as a sacrificial lamb for a year. Pay me a lot of money. I'll listen. I'll take the barbs. Put me, give me a lot of money. I'll be the guy. Then you can replace me at the end of the year, sure. and everyone's happy. Well, the thing is, whoever the guy is, you know, normally you'd sort of, you know, groom somebody for the job, bring them in, and how do you, know, you do that? But how do you do that when the guy's the guy's done every <laughs> game by himself for sixty-seven years? Does it does it surprise you? I want to move on to the World Cup in just a second, but does it surprise you with baseball announcers? That we keep talking about how baseball has to... Now, obviously the TV numbers are great, the radio numbers are pretty good, the interest, the crowds are up, but we keep hearing baseball has to modernize, baseball has to modernize, and yet we don't, that I can think of, have any radio announcers that we would think of in play-by-play in baseball who would be modern or urban or you know, appealing to that market that doesn't exist. Does it surprise you that no team has said, you know what, I'm going to bring in something completely different here? And I'm going to see if we can appeal to a much younger, much more video age generation, social media conscious kind of crowd. Well, I think you know that's a good point. I hadn't really thought of that, but uh, you know, baseball is a sport that uh, that tends to skew uh, you know middle age and up as far as it's certainly as far as its TV and radio audiences go. It's getting a little bit younger in the ballpark, but uh, but on you know on, on TV and a radio, it's pretty much a, a you know. A curling crowd, a senior citizens group. So yeah, I mean, it actually doesn't surprise it surprises me that nobody's ever thought. Well, you know, it's time to bring in uh, sort of maybe a real a real cool guy who uh, who will attract younger uh, younger uh, listeners and viewers. But again, boy, that's a, that's a heck of a step to make. Um, you know, you might do it with a color guy, bring in some uh, you know sort of off the wall guy who might appeal to younger generation. But as far as play by play goes, I think. Uh, that might just be a you know a bit too much of a risk. Well, you know, you, you as you say, you look around the crowd, look around Rogers Center. There's a lot of people who are young people yeah. who are there, and and when you say you know it's an older crowd, I just wonder if the reason it's an older crowd is because that who that's who watches TV and listens to the radio, or if it's because we've never actually given anything any reason for the younger crowd to tune into us because they're going to get Vin Scully or his <laughs> likeness. Yeah, although I still think the 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 pace of the game, you know, the three hours with all that downtime is is just something that that doesn't appeal to young people these days. I, I you know I don't think they've got the time or the interest to sit there for that uh, that length of time. I don't think it has that much to do with who's who's doing the announcing. To be honest with you, just play Drake between pitches. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just before we got a few minutes here before we have to move along, um, World Cup of Hockey probably. All, for all intents and purposes, we would expect wraps up tomorrow unless uh, somehow uh, Europe, Team Europe, the, the traditional hockey power of Team Europe, right. pulls it together and beats Canada, who they couldn't beat Canada when Canada played really poorly last night. What have you made? And the numbers are good. The TV numbers are great. Yeah. But what do you make of this whole tournament? Do we look at this at the end? Are we going to look and is it going to be judged entirely on numbers? Or are they going to say, mm, I don't know? Well, I guess the whole, probably the whole, thing hinges on how much money they made um how much money the players association made how much uh, rogers made and how much the nhl made and if they made a lot of money at it then they'll probably do it again uh you know the artistic side of it i mean it's 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 been there's been some pretty good hockey um but, you know and and if had it been canada and russia or canada and the united states in the final we'd probably be saying jesus uh you know this turned out great 
but because it's sort of this, uh, you know, Europe with an asterisk, you know, minus half the countries kind of <laughs> weird hybrid team. That <laughs> hey, I don't see any players from Luxembourg on this team. <laughs> no, uh, no, and you know, Monaco is shut out completely. Exactly. And and yeah, and Vatican City. Like, where's Vatican <laughs> City in this whole thing? Honestly. Yeah. Um, but the numbers have been great, though. Like your TV numbers, and I saw you wrote a piece yeah. on it. The, the numbers have been big. Yeah, I mean the uh, the Saturday night game did three million, which no NHL game has done in, in two seasons. Hmm. Uh, and we're talking uh, three million. You're talking Stanley Cup final numbers. Um, last night's game uh, dropped quite a bit. It was about a little over two million, but that's understandable. But still, even two million, uh, hockey night in Canada. Boy, they weren't weren't many games. Uh, Last year, where they topped two million. In fact, the uh, the average for the Stanley Cup final was le- was less than last night's game. So, yeah, it's it's done surprisingly well. And I I think like most people, I expected uh, you know a big yawn when this thing uh, started because again, it was just so weird. You know, this mm. team North America and team you know team North America, even though there's two teams from North America already in it. I thought maybe at first it was a Mexican team or something. Uh, you know, and again, there's this weird European team, but I don't know, a, a hockey, hockey sells. Well, and what's really interesting in this thing is that it seemed in the first week, while the Jays honestly were still slumping a little bit, it really cut into the Jays' audience a bit. Now that the Jays seem to be back on track... It seems to be that, as you say, the the number for the final. Now, maybe that's just because it's Europe. Maybe that's because people have turned their TVs back to the Blue Jays because this is an important series. But they each cut into each other, and you wonder what kind of numbers one might have had if the other wasn't on. Yeah, no, very uh, very good point. I think uh, you know both both probably would have been higher. You're right. Um, just before we let you go. Um, what is uh, what was I going to ask you? I can't even remember now what I was going to say. Um, Oh yeah, uh, sorry. It was about the Jays. Sorry, I just you know what? It was one of those things. I just had a like a moment. You don't try to do it on the radio too often, but you just boop blank. Um, will the Jays? I mean, they are going to be by the looks of it playing in the playoffs. Can they repeat what they did last year? Can the numbers go back to where they were last year? Because it seems the level of excitement, the level of whatever that people had, is not exactly there but when they switch the dial and they say okay now it's playoffs does everything go right back and are we talking four or five million numbers again yeah, i think you're probably not going to see the numbers get that high uh, right away and i think it's because last year was the perfect storm right first time in 20 years uh you know the way they did it the way they looked like they were you know the best team in baseball you know this year has been a bit more of a struggle and and it's like yeah well we were there last year so we expect to be there this year so i think you know, the enthusiasm isn't quite what it was last year. And I think, honestly, they probably will have to make it to the World Series before you start seeing those huge numbers again. Or Texas. <laughs> yeah, Texas would help. Texas versus Toronto after what happened with with Batista and Odor and all that kind of stuff. They might actually draw some... some... Yeah, no, I, I, I would think a first game of that series would uh, would do quite well. And then after that, it would depend on, uh, no. on what was happening. I'm sure that Fox would fly in Harold Reynolds special just for that one. <laughs> Just to pick up on what he was doing last year, talking about how fast the turf was, as I recall, was right, the. Uh, see if you could find Canadians who could catch because they <laughs> all, all grew up playing hockey. Chris Zelkovich, uh, Yahoo Sports. You can always find his stuff there. Uh, Chris, really appreciate you doing this. As always, appreciate it. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Uh, you know, one of the things we never got to, and I was going to ask Chris, but you know what? As we got along there, and that's why I got distracted because I was I was 
going between two things because I knew we weren't going to get time to answer this properly. But I'll leave this with you just to ponder yourself as we go to a break. I don't know if you saw any of the coverage in the last few days of the Miami Marlins as a result of the Jose Fernandez death and they showed, you know, they showed D Gordon hitting a home run, which that part clearly to me, that D Gordon home run and his response as he ran around the bases, if you didn't see it, well, first of all, you remember Jose Fernandez was the pitcher for the Marlins who died in a boat accident. Next game that Marlins play, the leadoff batter hits a home run. He hadn't hit a home run all year, and he was weeping as he was running around the bases. That part, absolutely legitimate. But I look at some of the other stuff that was happening, and i got to be honest, one of the questions, and maybe it's just me being so cynical, so skeptical, how much do you think of what they did after surrounding the pitcher's mound, laying their hats on the pitcher's mound, writing in the dirt on the pitcher's mound. How much of that is an honest representation of them acting out their emotions and how much is knowing the TV cameras are on and you have to do something to look like you're doing something big. And I'm not, again, it doesn't take away the fact I know that I ever, I believe entirely that every guy on that team was deeply and emotionally moved by the fact that they lost a friend. That's not my point. I believe that when D Gordon ran around those bases after hitting the home run, that the tears were absolutely real. But afterwards, when you've, when you're not in the moment, when you have time to think a little bit about what you're going to do, are you doing it because the cameras are there and because it's going to look appropriate? Or are you doing it because this is a legitimate extension of your emotion? And I wanted to ask Chris that because I, you know, you see these things every once in a while, you see people do these things and you go, is that, do you, do you believe, maybe we're so cynical now because we've seen so much. Do you believe that that's really, that if there were no cameras in the stadium, would they have done that? That's you're, what I don't know. You're being intensely cynical. I mean, I, I know I'm, in, like, I know I'm cynical, but if there was no camera there, do you think they would have done that? Yeah, absolutely. The the comparable is like, Jose Fernandez is one of the best young pitchers in the game. Agreed. The point that people people have been saying that they arguing that if you're starting a, a franchise around a pitcher, it's him or one other guy that you're taking prior, prior to his death. And to put it in terms that maybe more Canadian baseball fans would understand, what if Roy Halladay had passed away after his 2003 season when he won 22 games? Like, just try to imagine how much of a central focus of the team that particular guy is. And and the Marlins, no less, a team that has nothing other than Giancarlo Stanton and him. So there, he's going to be somebody that is the focus of everybody on that team. And for him to suddenly be gone... And the fact that all of the reports are that he was just such a wonderful teammate and a wonderful person, it's even the guys who weren't his best friend are going to be supremely affected by that. And I think that maybe not every single one of them is going to individually want to go around the mound, but as a team, they're going to want to all do that together. And again, I go back to my first point. I don't dispute, I don't, I'm not cynical enough. I don't dispute that they all had deep emotional feelings about losing Jose Fernandez. That's not the issue. I'm talking about the almost scripted thing afterwards. Do you think that that was a legitimate manifestation of their emotion? Or do you think that they looked at it and said, we got to do something because we're being watched because the cameras are here. And, no, and they, they were all wearing that, the jerseys. That they doesn't w- make it a bad thing. That doesn't necessarily even make it a bad thing. I just wonder. I just wonder how much of this stuff, because we now have cameras everywhere. We have cameras on our phones. We know that everything we do is being watched and judged. 
And that's all. I just wondered I, if that was pl- if that if there had no. been no cameras in the dressing room. If this had been done in the change room, was there something done elsewhere that where it was hidden away? I don't know. I don't know because because D Gordon didn't just hit that home run. There's footage of him doing something before the game, going out to the mound. Sure. And it, and and in that situation, like, are you going to say that he did that because he knew there was a camera? Because I don't think he knew there was a camera. That was no, that's not what I'm talking hours, about. Hours, but but like, I, I can see this being somebody on the coaching staff or somebody else on the team saying. As a way for us to all express our emotions to try and get it out, we are going to do this. I don't think in any of their minds it was, also, there's a camera there, so we should probably do it. I think it was, this is the best way for the team to try and heal and move, and move forwards. Radley at 900CHML.com. What do you think? Are you? Do you wonder, that's all it is, do you wonder... If teams, not just in this situation, but in others as well, do you wonder if teams do some of these things because they know the cameras are on? Or do you think that these are all absolutely legitimate things that even if there was no TV camera, no still camera in the stadium, they would do it because of their buddy? And again, I'm not talking about the, I'm not talking about the spontaneous moments. I'm talking about the stuff afterwards. It's just, to me, it's an interesting discussion about sports and TV and what, how sports, how TV has affected sports or has it? I'm, I'm, I'm somewhat skeptical. I, there's part of me that thinks that they knew the cameras were there. So for that moment after the game, we've got to do something that really shows how much we care. Even though I know they did care that they were looking for some way to show. Anyway, Radley at 900 CHL. Give me a shout if you have a thought on that one. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900, AM 900 CHML.